So if you please grab your Bible, if you have one with you. Uh, we also have Bibles out on the table out there, so feel free to, to grab a Bible. Uh, you can also pull the passage up on your phone. If you have a phone with you, you can always even just Google the text that we're going to be looking at today. And so we find ourselves in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. Book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. And last week, we talked about facing the reality of death, that, that we don't have to shy away from the reality of death. And we said that wisdom is actually found in the house of mourning, that, it's, that wisdom can be found in grief and in sorrow and, and the hardship that comes into our life. We, we recognize that it's hard, but yet Christians can have, have boldness as we confront the reality of death. And so today, then, that theme, that, that logic is continuing. So he's going from reflecting on the reality of death to reflecting on God's providence, God's control over all things, and the sense of, of trust that we should have in the providence of God, followed by the sense of, of living moderately, this holy moderation in fear of the Lord. So again, I'll be reading verse 13 through verse 19. Ecclesiastes 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wrongdoing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray for the, the wisdom that is here in your, in your word, the wisdom that gives strength to the wise, more than ten rulers who are in a city, Lord. We need the, the wisdom of the wise, and especially as we consider the, the, the twists and turns of our life, the good days and the bad days, and are you actually doing something in our life? Are you in control of our life? Lord, please guide our discussion of this text today. And so I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to be focusing primarily on verse 13 to 15. 
Now, we could say a lot about verse 16 to 19 as well. That the heart of verse 16 to 19 is saying not that we should just be kind of good or, or kind of bad. It's not saying that we should be lukewarm. But it's really talking about don't be overly righteous in the sense of don't be overly worried about being perceived as righteous. Don't be self-righteous or don't be living to be wicked and to do what is wrong. But he said that there is this holy moderation that, that, the, that one who fears the Lord will come out from both, from those who seek to be self-righteous and those who seek to be, be wicked. Again, there's a lot that we could say about that holy moderation. But today, we're going to be focusing on verse 13 to 15. And the theme of these verses is providence, the providence of God. Now, you hear the word providence, and you might break the word down, provide, hence, that it's about God providing, the providence of God in our life and in the world. But it's somewhat of a, of a strange word. It's not a word that we use on a daily basis, especially outside of Christian circles. If you're here and you're not part of the, the Christian community or if you've grown up outside of that, it may sound like an unfamiliar word. Often when you read older writers, think of the, the founding fathers, you read someone like George Washington and they talk about providence a lot, providence guiding them in their journey, providence guiding them in the, the battle. And, and you wonder, well, what do they mean by providence? Well, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is part of the doctrinal standard for our church, says this about providence. It says, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, all actions, all things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now there's a lot of words there and maybe someday we'll do a Sunday school on just that one paragraph and unpack all of it talking about the, the doctrine of, of providence. But providence has to do with God's control over the events of life. You can think of the book of Job, uh, chapter 38 to 40. You remember how Job was rich, successful, blessed by the Lord. He lost everything, but it was God's providence that was directing it. And then he had his miserable comforters who came, who failed to say anything that was useful to him. And then at the end, you'll remember how God shows up in the whirlwind. And God doesn't show up to say, Job, you were really right to be upset, but, but it says God shows up in the whirlwind and says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Job 30, uh, 38, 33, he says, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish the rule of the earth? Can you lift up the voice of the clouds that a flood of water may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings? Can you that they may go forth and say, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? And so God's giving all of these rhetorical questions saying, where were you? Can you do all of these things? Do you understand the course of the universe? And the answer is clearly no. Job even says, I'll put my hand over my mouth. I can say no more. 
And that's the doctrine of providence, that God is governing all things. The vast movement of the planets, the most important movements of nations, it's governed by the providence of God. The smallest details of life, the smallest details of the universe governed by the providence of God. And that's what Jesus means in Matthew 10, 29. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So Jesus is saying that providence is governing even the death of sparrows, something so ordinary, something so mundane. God's providence is directing. Or in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says that in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So he's not saying that God works some things according to the counsel of his will and some things according to the counsel of our will. Or he doesn't say some things are according to the counsel of his will and other things are governed by random chance or some sort of deterministic, naturalistic process of nature. But he's saying, no, that God is governing everything. He is, it's his purpose according to the counsel of his will. And that's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism can say that God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. And so that's a theological primer on the doctrine of providence. But you might be saying, my life is hard right now. I don't, I don't need a, a theology lesson. Things are are difficult, that I'm barely holding on. And so how do we understand the doctrine of providence? And, and that's what our, our text brings us to, that this text is about the providence of God, because it's saying that, yes, life is hard. Sometimes everything is going well, everything is going on the path that you would have set out for your life, but then sometimes the road turns. There is uh, as a Puritan author says, a crick in your lot, which means that God, God changes the path of your life dramatically. You were healthy, wealthy, and wise, and then suddenly you feel like it's all slipping away. You're losing everything. Everything is falling apart. And what do you do then? How do you reflect on the providence of God when it seems like your life itself is unraveling? The question that we could ask is this, what do we need to remember when everything falls apart? What do we need to remember about God, about the providence of God when it seems like everything around us is falling apart? We see three answers here in our text. And the first answer is from verse 13, that we need to remember that God's providence is immutable, immutable, it's unchanging. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. And you say, well, what does he mean by the work of God? Consider the work of God. And this is saying all the work of God in the world, all the world out, action towards the world outside of himself, Consider the work of God in the direction of history. Consider the work of God in the events of your life. Consider the work of God. And then he asks the question, who 
can make straight what he has made crooked. Who can change the providence of God? When, when God makes the highway of your life turn a different direction, are you able to change the will of God, to move that road a different way? And this is clearly a rhetorical question as well. Where were you when I formed the earth? And the, clear, the answer here is no. No one can change the providence of God that we can think of the immutable providence of God. And that's what we read in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27. It says, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Or you could think of Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans, his plans to all generations. Or Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even what seems random is from the Lord. Or Proverbs 21 verse 30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Or in the language of our text here, who can make straight what God has made crooked. And so you take that into your life. You think of the, the twists and, and turns of your, of your life. Are the events of your life random? Is it that things are, are happening to you? Well, you just happen to decide to go to the grocery store and that's why your car got hit. Or you just happened to walk down that hill so you slipped and fell. Or you just happen to choose that college and so that set your course is is the world just a, a series of, of random uncontrolled events whether we're thinking about our decisions or the decisions of others and what we see is no that there is the immutable providence of god and so you say can anything change the providence of god can random chance change it can human will change it can human sin change it? Can your sin change it? Can my sin change the providence of God? Can it redirect the path of God's sovereign purposes in the world? And at first you might say, well, I, I, I want to believe that the purpose can be changed, that if not, it seems fatalistic. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.38. He says that I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that comfort, that promise from Romans 8 can only be true if the providence of God is immutable. If nothing outside of God's sovereign will can change the purpose. Because if not, if, if providence could be changed by chance, or if you could change the plan, or you could redirect the purposes of God, then very likely something in creation could separate you from the love of God in Christ. Something could put you outside of the love of God in Christ, even if that is your own choice, your own decision. But he says that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that's because 
His providence is immutable. It's unchanging. Nothing can separate us. And so we can take comfort from that. It's not just an abstract idea that the providence of God is immutable, but it's part of our only comfort in life and death. It's part of the way that we can live our life. I can't imagine living just believing that the events of life are random or that God is somehow being thrown for a loop by what happens to us as if he's not control, as if he's not sovereign, that this is great comfort for Christians here in this text, that we need to remember God's providence is immutable, especially when it seems like everything is falling apart. But then second, here's the, the second point. Remember we said, what do we need to remember when it seems like everything is falling apart? Second, we need to remember that God's providence is all-encompassing. So it's immutable, it's not changeable, but it's also all-encompassing. And that means that it extends both to the good and to the bad. And this is what you see in the next verse. So look at your Bible again at our text, Ecclesiastes 7, now moving from verse 13 to verse 14. He says that in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So here you see the the contrast. There's the day of prosperity. That's the good day. That's the day where your life is going the way that you plan, the way that you would desire. And we can say that the good day is a gift from God. Sometimes, as we talked about last week, it can distract us from thinking about the deeper questions of life and eternity. But yet, the gifts of God are good. We can give thanks. And that's why he says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Be happy. Give thanks to the Lord. It says in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is immutable and is it's unchanging, but that means that his gifts are coming down from above. We can give thanks to the Lord because his steadfast love endures forever. But then what about the day of adversity? What about the, the bad day? And I think sometimes what we want to believe or we start to believe in some way is that the good day is from God. We give thanks for that. But then the bad day is from somewhere else. Maybe it's from our bad decisions and so we beat ourselves up. Or it's because someone else did something to us and we're victims of someone else's action. But one way or another, God has nothing to do with the hard day. He only has something to do with the good day. So how do we think about the day of adversity? Is God sovereign over both the good day and the bad day? And this is where it is important to say that God is not the author of evil. It says in 1 John 1, 5, This is the message which we have heard from, the, from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That God does not make us sin. He's not morally responsible. 
for our sin. He created the world good. He is not the author of evil. But that also doesn't mean that somehow evil action is happening outside of his sovereignty, outside of his control of the world. That God is still sovereign over the day of adversity, over the bad day, because providence is all-encompassing. Nothing happens outside of his will. Remember what I was just saying from Ephesians 1.11, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that means that the day of prosperity is according to the will of God. The day of adversity is according to the will of God. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Not the author of sin, but yet God has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. You say, well, that's, that's a hard truth, and it is a hard truth. But just as I was saying before, that, that this is how the, the promises of God can be true for you and me. If not, we don't have as much hope in the unfading promises of God. You remember what Paul said earlier in Romans 8. He says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that's a, a text that can be used in a trite way. Somebody's suffering and you just say, well, it all works together for good in the end, not realizing the depth of their suffering and their pain. That would be a misuse of it. But the proper use is to say that your job loss is not an accident, that God is working good. Your sickness is not an accident. God is working good. Your, your financial situation is not an accident. That God is working. The way that you feel on the inside is not an accident. That God is working good in the world, through you, even through what is hard and what is painful. And that is far more comfort to us as believers than believing that somehow it's random, that God is not involved at all. And so again, we need to remember that God's providence is all-encompassing, encompasses both the good and the bad. But then here, third and, and finally, what do, we, what do we need to remember when we consider everything falling apart? That we need to remember that God's providence is perplexing. It can seem strange. It doesn't seem like what we would do on the surface. And that's what we see at the, the next verse. So go back to our text, Ecclesiastes 7, moving to verse 15, from verse 14 to verse 15. He says, In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And so he's not shying away from the perplexing nature of the way God orders the world. Yes, God is, is sovereign. Yes, he is at work in the world. Yes, we can't change the immutable providence of God that extends to the good and to the bad. But he says, well, just look at the world. There are people who seem like they're doing everything right, and suffering comes into their life, even though 
It, it seems like they didn't deserve that. Think of Job in the Old Testament. Then you could look at people where they're, they're raging against God. They're, they're living contrary to God's word, and it seems like their life is easy. Everything is going great. And we say this is some sort of cosmic injustice. This is, this is not fair. This is not the way that it should be. And then at that point, we have one of two options. The one is to say there is no God, or related to that, to, to take the approach of maybe there's a God, but he's not concerned with the events of the world or he's not good. Or we recognize that God has purposes in the world that we don't see or don't understand. I've recently been, been reading a book called the, the Mystery of Providence. It's by a 17th century author named John Flavel. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful book. The way I've been describing it to people is I thought it was going to be more of a theological treatise, but it's, my summary is providence is fun. <laughs> uh, he, he, he just goes through how incredible it is that God controls the course of events in our life. But he has this helpful distinction where he says that sometimes we can think about providence as full and complete. That's God's perspective. He sees the entire thing. But then often our experience of providence is partial and incomplete. We're not seeing the whole picture yet. And the image that he used was a watch. So you can imagine a mechanical watch, and you take the back off of the mechanical watch. And if you've ever seen inside of a watch, there are little gears moving, things moving back and forth, tons of little teeny tiny parts. And it's the kind of thing where if you tried to take it apart, unless you were an expert in watches, you could never put it back together. You don't understand what all the little springs are doing, all the little wheels are doing. Why are they moving this direction or that direction? And that's the way it is when we think of the world, the course of events. Though all we see are the little gears moving. It seems random. It seems unconnected. But then if you flip the watch over and you see the watch face, you see there's the second hand moving in perfect time. There's the... the the minute hand moving in perfect time. There's the, the hour hand moving in perfect time. Everything is moving in perfect order, directed to where it needs to go. And that's providence from God's perspective, that, that he knows what he is doing. And, and Flavel says, providence is wiser than you. And you may be confident that it has suited all things better to your eternal good than you could do had you been left to your own option. And so it's saying that if God said suddenly, you know what, I'm going to let you determine the course of your own life. You can decide what's good for you. I'm going to let be the Lord of your own life. You'd run the events of life. That it's saying that, that it wouldn't turn out well in the end. That at first you think that, that your life turning out the way you want it to turn out would be better. But in the end, it would, it would not be as good. It would bring nothing but sorrow. It would bring nothing but pain. It would not be the joy that we would think. And this is exactly what you see in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. I mean, this is the story in the Bible to illustrate providence. We remember Joseph. He was sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. And there you see his brothers were sinning. They did something wrong. God was not the author of their sinful actions. They chose to sin against Joseph by selling him into slavery. He ended up in Egypt in the home of Potiphar. And then things started to seem good. They're getting better. 
He's rising to the top, at least, of the, the slaves in the house. But then Potiphar's wife lies about him, accuses him of sexual assault, and he's thrown in jail unjustly. And I'm sure that for Joseph at that moment, if, if he's seen just the inside of the watch, he's seen these random events saying, why would God have me sold into slavery? Why would God have me sent to prison? Why would he have me be falsely accused? No good could come out of this. No way that God is involved in this. Could God be good in my suffering? And then you remember that through a series of events, he was elevated from prison all the way to second in command in Egypt, was allowed to, to gather crops to preserve the known world from a terrible famine, saved many lives. And so he got this rare glimpse at the front of the watch. We most often are stuck just seeing the inner workings. We don't know how it's all fitting together. But Joseph, and occasionally we have that privilege as well, we get to flip the watch over and God says, see, this is how I was working in that hard thing that entered into your life. And so we won't get that view for most things until we get to heaven. But even when Joseph confronted his brothers, he forgave them. They were still worried that he was going to somehow get back at them. And this is what he says in Genesis 50, verse 19. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That you intended it for evil, you were responsible for your actions, but yet God was doing something else in his providence. You see so many stories of this in the Bible. The story of Esther being elevated. Something horrible happens to her. She has to marry this pagan king, but then God works good from it. It happens over and over again in scripture, in your life, in my life. But the ultimate picture of this is found in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In our text from Ecclesiastes, it says that there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And yes, we can see where there are people who generally are living a good life and they suffer and that seems unfair. But every single one of us is a sinner. They're the only truly righteous, the only truly perfect person who ever lived in all of history was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it says there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus, that he suffered in his life. He perished in his righteousness on the cross. And for the people who were around the cross, for the disciples, they said, this, this is wrong. There's, there's no way that God could be at work here. This is the, the worst day imaginable, the Son of God dying. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was going to be the, the one who would kick out the Romans. We thought that this was the person where we could fix our hope, but everything is falling apart. Jesus is dying. The righteous man is perishing in his righteousness. Maybe God is not sovereign. Maybe events are random. Maybe there's no control. But then we know ultimately that God, in that very dark moment, when you take the watch and you flip it over and you see perfect time being kept, God working through the sinful actions of the men who crucified him, accomplishing the redemption of his people, yet without being the author of evil. And that's what Peter talks about in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. 
It says that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of sinful, of lawless men. So you see that he's saying that, yes, it's, it's the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned before the foundation of the world that Jesus would go to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. That was his sovereign design. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? But yet it says that talking to the people who literally crucified Jesus at this point, Peter is saying, you crucified him, sinful men, lawless men crucified him, morally responsible for their action. But he says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by them. And so I would encourage you just to always keep your eye on the cross of Christ. Keep your eye on it in the good day when you're giving thanks that your life is going the way that it should. But then especially when it seems like everything is falling apart, when your life is hard, when you're suffering, when your life isn't falling out the way you would like or the way that you planned, you can say, yeah, my moment is dark, but it's not as dark as the moment that Jesus Christ hung on the cross, suffering, bearing the wrath of his people. And if God in his providence was able to bring some good that no one could see in that moment out from that dark moment, then for those who are in Christ Jesus, can he bring something even more beautiful, something more amazing than we could ever possibly have planned, ever possibly imagine, working all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father, our lives don't feel like a straight line. We feel like our life is constantly twisting and turning, that suddenly an obstacle is thrown up in our path, the road turns, and from our perspective, it feels like the road is crooked, like it's not where we would want it to go. And I think that all of us can confess that feeling in big ways and small ways, maybe in the past, maybe today. But Lord, we need the vision of the other side of the watch. We need to see you're, you're keeping perfect time. Your plan is unfolding. And we thank you that we have the privilege of being part of that. And so, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't fall into some kind of naive optimism, saying that the, the bad is actually good, that bad is bad. Sin is sin. The hard days can stink, and they're, they're difficult. But yet, Lord, we pray that we would not lose hope in the midst of them, that we would keep our eyes on the promise. And Lord, we pray today that you would give us little opportunities to flip over the watch and to see what you are doing. I'm sure that everyone in this room who knows Christ can see places where, where you worked good, even from difficult, hard situations. But yet, Lord, in the places where we don't see that, we know that, that faith is living by not by sight, that, that faith is trusting in the promises of God. And so we pray that we can walk in faith, knowing that you are doing good in us and through us, that you are working all things for good, the best things for good, the worst things for good, and that we would have that, that providential trust, knowing your goodness, looking to our ultimate hope, keeping our eye on Christ as our example, but most of all as our Savior who purchased our redemption on the cross. We put our trust in him.